Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book 15, chapter 12. How does the news of the death of Pierre, sorry, news of death that Pierre receives in this chapter impact him and how might it have been different before his time in captivity? What do you think Pierre will pursue now? Kara Kikar says, in some ways, I think my 21st central century cultural ideas and tropes are poisoning my reading of this chapter. This chapter brought to mind cozy mysteries and whodunit TV shows. Weird tangent, I know. It just got me thinking about how conflicts are set up in those books and shows. You've got a lot of people who are all being blackmailed, harassed, or otherwise harmed by a person who then conveniently gets murdered. Someone turns out to be the evildoer. Then everyone else gets to be happy in their lives because the big bad is dead. Hooray. Pierre seems to have the same situation. His fated, sorry, his hated wife is dead. His rival in Natasha's love is dead. He has emerged calm and probably better looking. And all it took was a major war and the death of hundreds of thousands of people. Hooray. I'm aware that is too simplistic, which is why I said poisoned, but here we are. I'm happy for Pierre. I hope he comes out of this with a minimum of PTSD and a maximum of simple joys. <laughs> That's a great great way to look at it, Karakikas. Um, you can't help but think of Pierre as the main character of the book once it gets to this point, right? He's kind of the only one who's made it through to this point. I mean, actually, that's not really strictly true, but we haven't heard from Nikolai for ages. What's going on with Nikolai? And Natasha, too... Uh, kind of, I mean, we've, we've touched base with Natasha, but I don't know, she's, I don't know, I feel like her story kind of came to a bit of a halt with the death of Andre, and then now her role is sort of looking after her mum, it seems. Um, who are the main characters? Maya, I haven't checked in with Maya for a while, other than in the context of with Natasha. It's really only Pierre who seems to still be journeying as a character, I guess. And so I just really do, by this point of the novel, just think of him as the main character. Four Lost Souls in a Bowl says, Oh, Tolstoy has decided to return to the plot. He has temporarily, and would you look at that? We're back with our characters. Brett Peterson says, So not too long before we last saw Natasha, she was having a spiritual awakening, and now Pierre had one of his own. I really hope this is setting them up to get together. I think that would be a happy couple. It would be a uh, a meet cute. Is that what they call it? I don't really know what that means. Um, I think it's when two lovers meet in a story. So I guess that happened uh, <laughs> like 300 chapters ago. Anywho, uh, let's keep reading chapter 13. It goes like this. In external ways, Pierre had hardly changed at all. In appearance, he was just what he used to be. As before, he was absent-minded and seemed occupied, not with what was before his eyes, but with something special of his own. The difference between his former and present self was that formerly, when he did not grasp what lay before him or was said to him, he had puckered his forehead painfully as if vainly seeking to distinguish something at a distance, At present he still forgot what was said to him and still did not see 
what was before his eyes, but he now looked with a scarcely perceptible and seemingly ironic smile at what was before him and listened to what was said, though evidently seeing and hearing something quite different. Formerly he had appeared to be a kind-hearted but unhappy man, and so people had been inclined to avoid him. Now a smile at the joy of life always played round his lips and sympathy for others shone in his eyes with a questioning look as to whether they were as content as he was, and people felt pleased by his presence. Previously he had talked a great deal, grew excited when he talked and seldom listened. Now he was seldom carried away in conversation and knew how to listen so that people readily told him their most intimate secrets. The princess who had never liked Pierre and had been particularly hostile to him since she had felt herself under obligations to him after the old count's death, now after staying a short time in Orel, where she had come intending to show Pierre that in spite of his ingratitude she considered it her duty to nurse him, felt to her surprise and vexation that she had become fond of him. Pierre did not in any way seek her approval, he merely studied her with interest. Formerly she had felt that he regarded her with indifference and irony, and so had shrunk into herself as she did with others who had and had only sorry, and had shown him only the combative, combative side of her nature. But now she seemed to be trying to understand the most intimate places of her heart and mistrustfully at first, but afterwards gratefully, she let him see the hidden kindly sides of her character. The most cunning man could not have crept into her confidence more successfully, evoking memories of the best times of her youth and showing sympathy with them, yet Pierre's cunning consisted simply in finding pleasures in drawing out the human qualities of the embittered, hard, and in her own way proud princess. Yes, he is a very, very kind man when he is not under the influence of bad people, but of people such as myself, thought she. His servants too, Terenti and Vasca, in their own way, noticed the change that had taken place in Pierre. They considered that he had become much simpler. Terenti, when he had helped him undress and wished him good night, often lingered with his master's boots in his hands and clothes over his arms to see whether he would not start to talk. And Pierre, noticing that Terenti wanted a chat, generally kept him there. Well, tell me now, how did you get food? he would ask. And Terenti would begin talking of the destruction of Moscow and of the old count, and would stand for a long time holding his clothes and talking, or sometimes listening to Pierre's stories, and then would go out into the hall, hall with a pleasant sense of intimacy with his master and affection for him. The doctor who attended Pierre and visited him every day, though he considered it his duty as a doctor to pose as a man whose every moment was of value to suffering humanity, would sit for hours with Pierre telling him his favourite anecdotes and his observations on the characters of his patients in general, and especially of the ladies. It's a pleasure to talk to a man like that. He is not like our provincials, he would say. There were several prisoners from the French army in Orel, and the doctor brought one of them, a young Italian, to see Pierre, this officer began visiting Pierre, and the princess used to make fun of the tenderness the Italian expressed for him. The Italian seemed happy only when he could come to see Pierre, talk with him, tell him about his past, his life at home, and his love, and pour out to him his indignation against the French and especially against Napoleon. If all Russians are in the least like you, it is sacrilege to fight such a nation, he said to Pierre, who... You, who have suffered so from the French, do not even feel animosity towards them. 
Pierre had evoked the passionate affection of the Italian merely by evoking the best side of his nature and taking a pleasure in doing so. During the last days of Pierre's stay in Orel, his old Masonic acquaintance Count Wilarski, who had introduced him to the lodge in 1807, came to see him. Wilarski was married to a Russian heiress who had a large estate in Orel province, and he occupied a temporary post in the commissariat department in that town. Hearing that Bezakov was in Orel, Wilarski, though they had never been intimate, came to him with the professions of friendship and intimacy that people who meet in a desert generally express for one another. Wilarski felt dull in Orel and was pleased to meet a man of his own circle and, as he supposed, of similar interests. But to his surprise, Wilarski soon noticed that Pierre had lagged much behind the times and had sunk, as he expressed it to himself, into apathy and egotism. You are letting yourself go, my dear fellow, he said. But for all that, Wolaski found it pleasanter now than it had been formerly to be with Pierre and came to see him every day. To Pierre, as he looked and at and listened to Wolaski, it seemed strange to think that he had been like that himself but a short time before. Wolaski was a married man with a family, busy with his family affairs, his wife's affairs and his official duties. He regarded all these occupations as hindrances to life and considered that they were all contemptible because their aim was to was the welfare of himself and his family. Military, administrative, political and Masonic interests continually absorbed his attention, and Pierre, without trying to change the other's views, and without condemning him, but with the quiet, joyful and amused smile now habitual to him, was interested in this strange, though very familiar phenomenon. There was a new feature in Pierre's relations with Wolaski... Any a call from the United Kingdom? I'm guessing that might be spam. There was a new feature in Will in Pierre's relations with Wolaski, with the princess, with the doctor, and with all the people who he now met, which gained for him the general goodwill. This was his acknowledgement of the impossibility of changing a man's convictions by words, and his recognition of the possibility of everyone thinking, feeling, and seeing things each from his own point of view. This legitimate peculiarity of each individual which used to excite and irritate Pierre now became a basis of the sympathy he felt for and the interest he took in other people. The difference and sometimes complete contradiction between men's opinions and their lives, between one man and another, pleased him and drew from him an amused and gentle smile. In practical matters, Pierre unexpectedly felt within himself a centre of gravity he had previously lacked, formerly a peculiar pecuniary all pecuniary questions especially requests for money to which as an extremely wealthy man he was very exposed produced in him a state of hopeless agitation and perplexity to give or not to give he had asked himself i have it and he needs it but someone else needs it still more who needs it most and perhaps they are both impostors in the old days he had been unable to find a way out of all these surmises and had given to all who asked as long as he had anything to give. Formerly he had been in a similar state of perplexity with regard to every question concerning his property. When one person advised one thing and another something else. Now to his surprise he found that he no longer felt either doubt or perplexity about these questions. There was now within him a judge who by some rule unknown to him decided what should or should not be done. He was as indifferent as heretofore 
to money matters, but now he felt certain of what ought and what ought not to be done. The first time he had recourse to his new judge was when a French prisoner, a colonel, came to him and, after talking a great deal about his exploits, concluded by making what amounted to a demand that Pierre should give him 4,000 francs to send to his wife and children. Pierre refused without the least difficulty or effort, and was afterwards surprised how simple and easy had been what used to appear so insurmountably difficult. At the same time that he refused the colonel's demand, he made up his mind that he must have recourse to artifice when leaving Orel to induce the Italian officer to accept some money, of which he was evidently in need. A further proof to Pierre of his own more settled outlook on practical matters was furnished by his decision with regard to his wife's debts and to the rebuilding of his houses in and near Moscow. His head steward came to him at Orel, and Pierre reckoned up with him his diminished income. The burning of Moscow had cost him, according to the head steward's calculation, about two million rubles. To console Pierre for these losses, the head steward gave him an estimate showing that despite these losses, his income would not be diminished, but would even be increased if he refused to pay his wife's debts, which he was under no obligation to meet and did not rebuild his Moscow house and the country house on his Moscow estate, which had cost him 80,000 rubles a year and brought in nothing. Yes, of course that's true, said Pierre with a cheerful smile. I don't need all that at all. By being ruined, I have become much richer. But in January, Savlich came from Moscow and gave him an account of the state of things there and spoke of the estimate an architect had made of the cost of rebuilding the town and country houses, speaking of this as of a settled matter. About the same time he received letters from Prince Vasily and other Petersburg acquaintances speaking of his wife's debts, and Pierre decided that the steward's proposals which had so pleased him were wrong and that he must go to Petersburg and settle his wife's affairs and rebuild in Moscow. Why this was necessary he did not know, but he knew for certain that it was necessary. His income would be reduced by three-fourths, but he felt it must be done. Wolaski was going to Moscow and they agreed to travel together. During the whole time of his own, of his convalescence in Oral, Pierre had experienced a feeling of joy, freedom and life, but when driving, but when during his journey he found himself in the open world and saw hundreds of new faces, that feeling was intensified. Throughout his journey he felt like a schoolboy on holiday. Everyone, the stage coach driver, the post house overseers, the peasants on the roads and in the villages, had a new significance for him. The presence and remarks of Wolaski, who continually deplored the ignorance and poverty of Russia and its backwardsness compared with Europe, <clears throat> only heightened Pierre's pleasure. Where Wolaski saw deadness, Pierre saw an extraordinary strength and vitality, the strength which in that vast space amid the snows maintained the life of his original peculiar and unique people. He did not contradict Wolaski and even seemed to agree with him, an apparent agreement being the simplest way to avoid discussions that would lead to nothing, and he smiled joyfully as he listened to him. Alright, there's the chapter for you. A bit of a long one, but let's recap it in the chat. Alright guys, see you tomorrow.